You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 28 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. Pretty excited about today's episode. Uh, it's been one we've been trying to set up for a little while and it's with Basketball England CEO Stuart Kellett. Obviously, Stuart came into the role um, a little over a year ago now, and things have been very quiet um, from the Sheffield HQ. Kind of a lot of people are wondering what's been going on. I know there's been a lot of uh, public outreach engagement um, with surveys and research and expert working groups. There actually hasn't been a lot of uh, sort of outward communication of the things that are being put into place and kind of what they, how they're approaching it and what they are trying to do. Um, and I think this interview does a real good job of, of kind of showing um, how Stuart is approaching it, his mindset, his background coming into the role, um, and really how he's taking on this beast of, of trying to transform basketball in England, which is, is no small task. And, you know, I'm not envious of, of, uh, of him at all. But as you'll hear, like you know, he's he's a really good guy. Um, seems to have got a pretty good grasp of the lay of the land, so to speak, um, and seems to be approaching it in what I think is the right way. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see kind of how it all pans out over the next year or so. Uh, as you'll hear in the interview, we're going to start seeing a little bit more action. I think there's a there is a bit of frustration on the ground with. Uh, with the lack of sort of uh, things happening that are affecting anyone on a day-to-day basis, it's still very much uh, the research phase. But as you'll hear, like that's all going to start sort of coming to fruition over the next year, 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 or, year or so. And as you also hear that, you know, this isn't a short-term, this isn't a short-term thing to to really transform the game in this country. It is a, you know, decade if not longer um, plan that needs to be implemented. Um, so yeah, have a listen. As always, let me know what you think. We've had great feedback on, on last week's uh, interview with Martin Henlon. We will be doing a part two. Um, yeah, I would love to hear, hear your thoughts, uh, positive, negative. Um, let's get some conversation going. If you do have a spare second as well, please leave us, leave us some ratings or review uh, on iTunes um, to help this podcast spread far and wide. And as always, if you do enjoy it, please give it a share uh, on your uh, most frequented social network. I'm contactable on sam at hoopsfix.com is my email. Um, all these social networks at hoopsfix. Uh, I would love to hear from you. And here is my conversation with Stuart Kellett. We're honoured to be here with Basketball England CEO Stuart Kellett. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. So there's obviously a, a lot to cover um, in this hour or so conversation. And I think the best place to start is kind of uh, your beginning, your background uh, kind of coming into the role. So for people that don't know, can you talk a little bit about what you've done before you came into the basketball England position? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, f- f- first of all, something I think people were saying that, that for the 12 months I've been at Basketball England, um, I've had a brilliant response from virtually everyone I've spoken to in the game. And it's good that I've got an opportunity for an hour or so with you to really share the things that I've been listening to and hearing. And I've, I've got my own thoughts about supporting the game a bit differently. Um, so this is a great opportunity. So th- thanks for, for that, Sam, because I think it's going to be a really interesting hour. Um, in terms of my own background, it's probably worth starting with, with my own kind of sports interest, I think, and then I'll talk a bit about my career and my, my skills and knowledge that I've gained through various occupations in sport and outside of sport, if that's okay. So, um, yeah, as a, as a youngster, I was absolutely fanatical about sport. I'd kind of leave the house at eight o'clock in the morning and I'd have to be dragged in the house at nine o'clock at night uh, from a kind of a young age of about nine, ten, um, because if I could kick a ball, throw a ball, get hold of a racket or a stick, I, I'd, I'd be on the end of that. Um, and it was my life. And uh, I was really, really uh, short at school, really small kids. So every time I tried to do anything, anything that's contact sport um, and even school basketball, I, I was always kind of in the corner being pushed around and this guy's not very good. And yet I was really fit, really athletic, but I just wasn't anywhere near the size of anybody in the school. I was really, really small. And I remember... Um, uh, a school teacher, we, we introduced to rugby, and I hadn't got a clue about rugby at the time. And I was throwing the ball right at the start of the game. I got absolutely minced in a, a serious neck injury. And the PE teacher said to me, 
what you need is a net between you and the opposition. So completely by accident, he introduced me to badminton. And had a real knack for it. And by coincidence, uh, another PE teacher was really good at badminton. And I got nurtured into the game. And uh, I absolutely loved it. And, and progressed into playing county and national international competition. Never played for England, but was always knocking on the door, having a good go at these kids who had more money than me and more coaching than me. But I was a real terror on the court. And um, me and a few other kids from my neighbourhood in Preston, a uh, pretty deprived neighbourhood actually, scratching around with crumbs, trying to, trying to buy a racket so we can compete with some of the England's best. Um, and, and at tender age, I got into volunteering as well. So I became the press secretary for the local league at the age of 18, became the match secretary at the age of 19 for the Lancashire League. And then I think just as I turned 19, I took a coaching qualification. So I was coaching. So at age 19, I was playing county badminton. I was doing volunteering work in the local leagues. Uh, and I was coaching kids and adults, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, the downside was my A-levels didn't quite come up to scratch, so my university aspirations were in the bin, really. But what, what was fortunate, because I was really into sport and I'd done lots of volunteering, I was good at organising things, I was really passionate about the sport and people, um, I got a really good opportunity with a local council at South Ribble Council as a training manager. It was like an activities officer, and I got involved in all sorts of organising all sorts of activities, working with young people, working with coaches, working with uh, physios, you name it. And I got a wealth of experience at a young age. And then through that, um, I kind of built up my kind of management expertise through training and uh, other experiences. And I came through the leisure centre world, the gym world. Um, and then I got into sort of working outdoors in parks, open spaces, outdoor events. So I've worked in uh, Devon as centre managers. I've worked in Bristol as a uh, parks manager, looking at uh, major events like the Bristol Balloon Fiesta. Um, and then I moved on to sort of work more broadly in um, leisure tourism and, and sort of regeneration. So the economic element of it and the health element came in. And I've worked for several local authorities at a senior level. Um, and then I started specialising back into sport. So I set up a, a county sports partnership some years ago called Lancashire Sport, and that's thriving now. And then I, I got a promotion to Sport England. I was the region director at Sporting the Northwest. That was really helpful because I could oversee loads of community projects. Um, I was overseeing the, the awards of the National Lottery Fund and assessing uh, great projects that increase participation and develop young kids. Um, and got a good, good, good awareness really about how all the various governing bodies see their sport and how they can sort of develop the game. So that was a really good broad church really of experience. Um, and then um, I got an opportunity to um, work at British Cycling and um, that, that was a real step up for me because it was my first specific role in, a, in one governing body. Um, I had brilliant experience working with B-Sky-B, that really, really smart organisation, really good at understanding customers and insight, uh, marketing, reaching new people, branding, commercial rights, all that kind of thing. And we, what was good is that I could fuse that experience and that professionalism that was in British Cycling at the time uh, and that kind of winning mentality that the organisations had, the organisation had. Uh, but fuse that with a volunteer world. And this is where I think we come into the, the basketball discussion because trying the, the challenge, I think, in modern day sport now is that you, you've got to try and fuse this business acumen that you need to run a good sport that's consuming, you know, a lot of resources and you're serving members who are primarily volunteers with that volunteer effort. And I think there's a real rub at the moment around, you know, most sports are, are propped up and, and run by volunteers. Absolutely. I don't think that'll ever change, really. But then if you really want to progress and, and, and win at the highest level, you need a professionalism uh, at that top level. But you need that professionalism in terms of attitude and approach and mentality running through the whole of the sport, but without alienating volunteers. Um, so I'm bringing all that forward, Sam, into the game, into basketball. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next 12 months because the first 12 months have been very much about stabilising the environment, looking at the organisation about what it needs to do to respond to basketball. And 12 months in, I've, looked, you know, I've just reflected back after being here 12 months now, and um, the, um, there's been a lot of false dawns, hasn't there? I think, I think the basketball community want certainty and, and real positive steps forward and, and very little going backwards or going forwards. And that's pretty tricky given what's happened, I think, in the recent past. But that's where I am, and I'm bringing a lot to the table. Um, 
I'm not rushing at things, as you probably know, and this will come out probably in the next hour, really listening and thinking about the right steps so things are positive and they move forward and are certain rather than it's a maybe and it's never going to happen. I'd, I'd be fascinated I'd, I'd be to hear two things. Um, one, what it was that made you first apply for the job in terms of, you know, like, and, and then I guess, and sort of tying into that, what your knowledge of was of what your knowledge of the basketball landscape was before you came into, into the basketball landscape yeah, um, and what kind of attracted you to it? Okay. Well, at the time, um, I, I wasn't looking for another role. I mean, at British cycling, but the role I had and the experience and, and, and the, the satisfaction I got uh, and what I was learning, I was learning all the time with, with partners, with changing the landscape of the sport across all the country uh, you know, working with commercial partners. It wasn't just Sky. There was other retail partners, other sponsors kicking in. Um, and I learned a lot about how to scale up participation in a really, really results-driven environment. I wouldn't say it was a harsh environment, but it was the mentality was, if we've got a target, we're going to find a way of, of delivering that on that target and making a lasting difference to the sport. And uh, and I was really enjoying it. I, I assembled a brilliant team uh, at a team of 50 people, um, all some from cycling interesting and some not. And that's where I think the strength of, of our work going forward is going to come to the fore to help basketball, where you, know, you need people who are who have got a perspective outside the sport who can see fresh thinking, but also the people in the sport who've got the knowledge, understand how it ticks. Um, so I was really enjoying it and I was still learning a ton. And, and things like, you know, getting 1.7 million people on a bike, changing the impression of the brand, uh, you know, helping the organisation move from 17,000 members to 130,000 members in eight years. They, they were really enjoyable times and, you know, stuff like the Tour de France kicking and so on. It was all, it was all uh, a really rich time and I was learning a lot and I, and I felt I was making a difference. However, <laughs> um, there was a, a recruitment drive from, from the board at Basketball England and they were seeking a, a new CEO. I think they were looking for a fresh outlook, someone who could bring in uh, some credibility with a track record so I'm not here to boast uh, I'm not the kind of person that beats my chest and shouts about myself but you've asked the question yeah. um, I um, I was kind of really interested in another challenge but I wasn't looking for it it was just that someone knocked on the door and said we're recruiting uh, would you consider uh, applying so asked a bit more about the role with the recruitment company um, didn't really know anyone in, in, in basketball from the past particularly but you know obviously I got a network and I've asked around and um, I got I got two sides of it really and I think I think this is probably where the sport's hoping to move from rather than staying in it which is the two sides were and, and I'm, I'm being careful now about how I speak about this in the sense that I think people are fed up of hearing about basketball's got so much potential <laughs> yep. because it's like it's had that for a long time and we want to move from potential to actually clinching our potential and moving it forward and, and, and bringing the game to the forefront of the nation, which where, where it, it definitely should be. So when I saw it, I thought that there is all this opportunity for the game. Then I asked the question, what, you know, looking at the sport, you know, there's, a, there's action every few seconds on a basketball court. And, and when you look at another sport, and I'm not here to knock other sports, but you, you look at the dynamics of basketball and you go... And I won't name the sports, but you look at the sports. So where's the action? Where's the excitement where someone's, someone's going to score? Where's the action where someone's going to get the advantage? And every few seconds, the game's flipping around. And there's very few sports like it. So I'm thinking, why isn't this sport in a different place? It's really strange, this. And then when you look at other, other nations um, and how the game's projected, even at kind of semi-professional and amateur level, it's so exciting. So I'm thinking the, the game as a product, if you will, just doesn't seem to have been teed up in the right way. But in other, way, in other ways, the, the game's full of thrills because different parts of the game have done some extraordinary things, probably without the help of the governing body in many examples. So the game's almost tried to look after itself. And that's, that's really testament, I think, to the people in the game, be it people in the professional clubs at the moment with, with a lot of economic constraints, down to your local volunteer every Wednesday night uh, and, and throughout the week who, who loves the club and loves the kids and supports them no matter what happens. So, so there's loads of positives with that. But I'm thinking, why isn't the governing body seen the bigger picture here and, and created an environment where the, the sport can thrive to grow participation? The volunteers, coaches, officials, referees, um, 
you know, why haven't they been given the environment where they can grow, thrive and, and raise standards? And, and again, it, it does happen, but it's probably of their own accord. Um, and, um, you know, you kind of ask that question, well, th there must be a lot you can do. You know, if someone comes in who, who can listen and, and harness the current energy in basketball, but then create an environment where investors are confident, there's some clarity about the direction of the game, the big advocates in the game can galvanise and help the game move forward. Surely there's some merit in having, having a really good go at this and making a difference. So that was really appealing, but at the same time, a little bit odd, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and then, kind of as as CEO, where do you see your well? What do you see your role being? You know, I, I always find that if I say that I'm going to be speaking to the CEO, people ask very specific, granular questions that I don't feel that you're responsible for, and it's kind of outside your remit. Um, yeah. I'd be interested to kind of see like what do you see your job as within Basketball England? Okay, I think f first and foremost, it, I feel I should be able to create the right conditions for the game to thrive all the time so that's a bit, of a bit of a broad shot but essentially if you look at let's look at some governing bodies uh, that have started to really succeed so um, if you look at today's kind of like lifestyles people are super busy there's loads of reasons why people don't play sport be it the sport they've grown up with or a new sport so a lot of this is about um, having having the insight, having the understanding of how people in society behave and how they would lock onto a sport like basketball. So it's, it's important that you want people we understand, and I can help a team and the organisation and the sport understand how would we attract people into basketball and how would we keep them in basketball. And that's understanding the barriers to get involved at whatever level, whether you're you know, man, woman, boy, girl, little money, a lot of money, whatever those things are in your life. How can we make the sport attractive for new people to get involved. And then when they're involved is what are the reasons that they continue and what are the reasons that they drop out and create the right basketball experiences and smooth out the way it runs and smooth out the way that volunteers get support and can run the game at local level and, and make that easy for them to, to retain those people. Now, other sports, um, and, sorry, and alongside that, is what I call the kind of the technical capability of a governing body, and that's something I want to talk about in this hour, where the whole pathway for the sport and the standards that are identified to support players, coaches, officials, the club support behind it, it's not clear enough. So good governing bodies that have succeeded, if we think about governing bodies that have been doing well in the Olympics and growing participation and probably rated as a good governing body alongside the sport, there's a few few um, key things that I would want to bring forward that they do well and you know, as I said before, when I worked at Sporting and I could oversee a lot of governing body activity and you could quickly pick out which governing bodies are getting their act together and which ones are really kind of trying to get their head into the environment and improve what they do. So one of the things that we're going to start doing now, we've got a funding settlement from Sporting and some stability, which is great for the next four years, is we're going to have to create a campaign. And I don't mean sort of multi-million pound campaign, but a regular kind of identifiable set of comms and campaigning. And this is where people like you and others come in, because it's not just about Basketball England, that projects the sport in a really positive way, talks about reasons to get involved and how to get involved. And then through the whole basketball community is that there's easy ways to join the club or get involved in after school basketball um, or get involved in. There are a lot of non-basketball non organisations that serve basketball. And it's like, how do those people make it easy and attractive to join the sport? So I'm looking at the idea of a macro campaign that promotes the sport, embracing all the partners. So that's something we're designing at the moment. And within that, we're talking a lot to young people. The, the, the governing body, and I think um, something perhaps the governing body's not done enough of, uh, certainly not done enough in the past, is, is consult young people. So we've been working with a couple of groups of young people as like a test group to say, you know, what does basketball look like and sound like to you? Do we speak to young people? Do we speak your language? And you look at the narrative on our website and it's we're talking to adults and it's been full of jargon. And so in the next few months, this is going to change. And, you know, you, you've been doing this for some years, Sam, you know, you, you with your content and the way you go about it, you, you know, you relate to the whole of the game. Um, so there's a few lessons for us, but I think the young people are key. So they're telling us that the game should look different. So the imagery, the narrative, the way we talk about it, the bite-sized video content, 
um, the way that young people can engage with us and give us a view, that's all going to change. And that will feed into a campaign so that we can promote the game very differently and it will feel very different. Um, and then linked with that, we'd hope that the chat online would change or, or follow this positive vibe that we're trying to, trying to, trying to create for, for the end. That's about the image and the attractiveness of the game. Now, for some people in the game, you say, well, it's fine because we all know what it's about and we love the game. But there's a lot of people who, who've talked to me outside the game saying, God, basketball's an amazing sport. Do you know what? I've thought about it on and off, but um, I wouldn't know how to get involved. And I hear that if you, you know, if you join a club, you've got to be really good at basketball and you've got to be tall. So I think busting a few myths through a campaign approach is key. So that's, that's one thing that governing bodies who are succeeding doing really well. So that's the first bit, a campaign, awareness, influencing behaviour, get, get their appetite up to join the sport and then find easier ways to do it. That's the first bit. The second bit then is, is alerting the basketball community that if we're going to do a recruitment drive, that we need to be brilliant at receiving these people for the first time because they might be hesitant, they might not have the skills, they might look at a, uh, a local club game and go, well, I'm not good enough, I'm not going to join the club. So there's, a, there's, a, there's very much an entry-level recreational element to feed, feed in. So that's the first thing about campaigning and responding to new people. The next bit for me is the capacity. So as a governing body, we, uh, we should understand the needs of the clubs, the coaches, referees, table officials, um, the requirements about league and competition structures so we get the right competitive levels of play throughout the country. Um, and the whole thing works as a, as a unit, as, a, as, a, as an integrated set of opportunities and a pathway, which I want to talk about as part of this chat today, Sam, if we can. Um, so, so we should be in touch with that. And that's why I've been pretty um, internally focused, really, and, and, and engaging people to find out what needs to change to make all these things happen that I've just mentioned. So that's about making sure that the component parts of the sport run really well and that the standards are, are the standard of practice are appropriate. Be it a six-year-old child who's trying it for the first time at school, a 14-year-old girl that's trying to get in the national team, or someone that's bridging into seniors that, that wants to compete at the highest level and, and, and play for Britain. So, so we're going to get that right. We're going to change that, but it will take a while, and I want to talk about that a bit, a bit more. So that's, that's the kind of response, that's that capacity. Um, and then the, the other element then is being, being aware of the broader environment. So um, the, a lot of things outside a governing body you can't control, but a lot of things you can influence. And I think the influencing uh, dimension of governing body is really, really important. And this is where reputation, spending money wisely, evaluating what's changing in the game and using partners, be it media partners like yourself, um, be it the BBC, Sky, whatever, but also partners in the game. So the professional club network for men and women, um, the uh, schools network, the education sector, youth sport trust, all these organisations, I think in the last few years, we've done work with them, but we haven't influenced people at the highest level. So they value the sport. And, and I'll give you an example um, when I was at British Cycling, the, the, the organisation was very much about racing. 17,000 people race on a bike. And after eight years of reaching out to partners, particularly local authorities, they value cycling very, very differently than eight, eight years ago. If you just talk to, to a council about um, competing in basketball and the local game, they'll appreciate it. They'll appreciate what's going on. It's a young person's sport. They'll understand the value of it. Um, but they won't take it to a high level. It won't be a priority compared with other really important things about people's health. So what I want to do in terms of projecting the game is to convince bigger partners who can influence society is that basketball is a, is, is a brilliant sport for a whole range of reasons, from life skills to health to, to getting deep into communities to help people you know, have aspirations and get better at what they want to get better at. And, and basketball is brilliant for that is to bring that to the forefront, because I think there's an underappreciation from public bodies. Um, but when you have the chat, when, you know, when I've had the conversations across the country and you open up these opportunities, you go, you know what, I've, I've kind of skimmed across basketball but never dwelt on it. And then the way I'm trying to describe it, and there'll be a new narrative for, the, for this summer, particularly young people narrative, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident that local authorities, if we can project the game better in the next couple of years, there'll be a different view from local authorities saying, this game is bigger than we thought. This game is more important than we thought. Um, but then it's about the supplies, about the, the local clubs being able to uh, step up and open the doors to, to receiving it. 
and, and probably later in this conversation, we can talk about those constraints and the, the struggles that clubs have to sort of expand and, and, and afford the local facilities. So, so if I summarise what I'm saying, we need, we, we need a communications campaign, something exciting, a new narrative for the game that actually appeals to more people. So it's, it's a bigger scale of operation. We need, we need all the infrastructure being teed up well and supported, and I've got some ideas on that which we can talk about. And then we need to influence more partners so that they can appreciate that this game offers much more than they currently think. Yeah, well, I was going to say that, um, you know, going to the, the BDM Roadshow yesterday in London, and they kind of outlined all of the findings from the, uh, the sort of the expert working groups and, and the survey... Yeah. And and the things that kind of need to change, or, or the the issues that people had, and kind of like, uh, and the things that they want to move forward in a different way with. It was all great, like in, you know, in terms of if all of those issues that were outlined are fixed, we're in a pretty good place. Yeah. But the the one thing in, in my mind was was that one of the biggest shifts that needs to take place is just the cultural shift. Which is kind yeah. of what you're alluding to there in terms of one, the authorities taking it, the, the local authorities taking it more seriously, but also within the basketball community itself in terms of people feeling a part of a bigger picture, people feeling that, oh, you know, when little Johnny is a, a good basketball player, he needs to send him to this place because this is a better club for his yeah. development. How do you, like, that is a massive thing to change. Yeah. Like it's what's well, changing the, the sporting the sporting landscape, the sporting culture. Like, yeah. how do you approach that kind of, what's your thought process around that? Okay, so so I think the the first step is um, to to identify what the pathway is and what's needed from a player perspective. What's needed at all the ages and stages? Because I think I think like like any sport, really, if, if you're not clear about how do young people progress, and from a coach's point of view, what is the coaching practice to support that young person? You know, how should the the game be handled? You know, whether it's an umpire in hockey or a referee in basketball, how how should the referee run the game to let the game flow for that level of, of, of interest of players? So, um, and what should the club environment be? So, so, so at the moment, you know, I don't think the pathway is clear. In fact, I'm, I'm told from people who've been at basketball for some time and other people in the game that they don't recall a, a fundamental pathway review ever, really. I think there's been key dimensions in the game that have been examined and said this needs to be better, you know, coaching review or uh, an areas of emphasis, and that's fine, but... My, the feedback I've been getting is that, that the journey from being um, an enthusiastic young child loving to run, catch, throw and shoot um, for fun through to, do you know what, um, I, think, I think I might have some potential and I want to join a club. I think I, think I actually could compete in that regional competition. The, the way that a player can progress and the parental understanding of that is, is not there, I don't think. Because, and, that's, and that's our fault. That's the governing bodies. You know, they should be really clear. A core competence of a go- any governing body is that this is the pathway for the sport, from enjoying it to developing your interest, to getting the skills to compete, to, to realising you've got potential to play for your region or your county, to, do you know what, this, your child has got the potential to be an England player or a British player. And, and that isn't clear. Now, if it's not clear for the player, Sam, what happens, in my opinion, is, well, what's the coaching input at all the different ages and stages that allow to help that child both enjoy it, develop the potential, and potentially become a world-booting basketball player? And that's not clear to a to a coach, I don't think. In, I'm generalising because a lot of coaches will they've got a lot of experience; they'll use their initiative. You know, someone like James Veer, who, who's coached abroad and is, is working with the national team, he'll have a lot of experience saying, "Well, I know what's needed," and, and a lot of the great coaches do. But when, when those coaches get those players at whatever level, they can only work with what they've got. So if in the club environment, if we can support the club coaches in a way where they've got more knowledge about what should that play, what should that 13-year-old girl look like in terms of agility, physical, tactical, the basketball IQ you want, if they know that practice and they're skilled up and they're, they're given support to do it, we're going to raise the standard. Now, these standards aren't defined, in my opinion, um, and if we have them defined, I've got this concept in my head, which I'm starting to sort of share with people in this kind of conversation, which is, you know, the, the national team isn't about the, the five or six national staff from head coach, assistant coach, physio and so on. Actually, the national team is it's the network of club coaches that are nurturing these young people to have all the right basic skills so that they, they do have potential. And um, I mean, I'll just move to football as an example, Sam, to try and bring this point out about changing the culture. Um, you know, uh, 
you know, Michael Owen, former Liverpool player, you know, he, he was constantly dogged by injury, wasn't he? And um, you kind of look at, you know, what as a youngster, I don't know the detail, but you, you look at these examples and say, what kind of prehab and training do these people get? And, and, and at club level, at junior level, what, how do we look after the welfare of players so that they're resilient players for life and they're not injury prone? And, um, and that's one of the reasons we're doing this pathway because the sports science element of it and the player loading and how much rest and recovery young people should get, um, the wall-to-wall competition, you know, the league structures at the moment need a, you need a huge adjustment. We've got some players that are just overplaying and competing, but no space for development. So I'm going to come back to your question, which is how do you change the culture? The starting point is a super clear player pathway, a breakdown of all the ages and stages uh, so that, you know, a 14-year-old girl can get the right support in terms of what's the right competition exposure, what's the right rest and recovery, what's the coaching um, practice at, at club level, um, what features does that, what competencies that does that girl need to have to be selected for regional competition and national competition? Um, and even the referees, I mean, we've broken it down now where, you know, we've even got the referees talking about, let's look at the flow of the game. You know, what point should you be hard on the rules and let the game flow? And we're looking at really interesting ideas of like a referee coach where you can stop the game. You can have a three minute timeout to discuss stuff on the court the whole thing is open for grab, up for grabs completely. So the first starting point is clear pathway, really clear standards of coaching, practice, refereeing, competition structure, the support to clubs, and even schools basketball. You know, what kind of environment are we trying to create in schools so that people can have fun but also develop the right skills if they want to move on? And it's not all about moving on because a lot of it is about kids just having the appetite to play for life, really. So once we've got the standards identified, what we're then going to do is look at the practice. So the culture here, it's about changing the culture. Um, we must have about uh, 200 coaches that are kind of across this now and, and thinking about it and inputting. Um, and it's pretty obvious we're going to, we need a new curriculum that reflects what the players need in terms of coaching practice. Um, we need a lot more uh, ongoing support and training, so we don't do enough of that at all. So, you know, if we're going to stretch coaches to support the players in a much better way in future, what do the coaches need? What's the coaching pathway? So if you're aspiring to be a better coach, what, what do they need? What support do they need? And I'll give you an example from the research. Um, so changing the culture around coaching. So, you know, how connected and, and, and what belief is there between a club coach feeding their player through to a national system? And I think a lot of coaches are very unselfish and, and, and other coaches might say, Do you know, I've, I've, I don't want to pass this, this youngster on because I've coached them for a long time and actually they're better, they're better playing in my environment. But I do get feedback that actually some of these youngsters are ready for the next level and they should be released. And that's pretty tough. Um, but I think the way to deal with it is to embrace the club world. We don't recognise the club contribution, which is massive, absolutely massive. Um, so I think, you know, other sports have started changing. It's something that it years ago about identifying the club coach and the club that's contributed to a swimmer's development. And, you know, when they get a chance to play for England, uh, swim for England or GB, the club starts to get recognition. And that, that's happened in a lot of sports. So things like standards, training, education, and ultimately licensing and rewarding people for, for, for those contributions is all part of the changing culture. Um, so so that, that's just part of it, Sam. I'm giving you snapshots today. Yeah. But... Yeah. They're the kind of things that people have been asking for. I also think there's a critical mass evolving. So uh, one of the reasons I've not been kind of very, very prevalent externally is I've been busy talking to people and groups of uh, and networks in a discreet fashion saying, what are your views about the game? What needs fixing? Looking forward, what do you want to change? And obviously you were at a session yesterday, which was partly about that. Um, and I think just by having the conversation and, and giving people a strong voice in so rather than the governing body just invent the changes to coaching, is that these coaches that are giving up a lot of the time, they are the ones that are influencing how the curriculum is going to change. And it's not just personal opinion. You know, we've been doing some research across the globe here about, you know, what is the best possible coaching practice for under-16 girls to change the curve from an English standard to actually matching the European standard. So, so it's not just opinion. There's a lot of research coming in. And, and I'll give you one example of a breakthrough where, I'll use hockey. Um, the women's GB team that won gold Olympics, you know, one of the things they had to do was try and match teams from like Holland who were much better skill-wise from what I understand. 
Um, and to do that, they had to really step up and be really resilient athletes because they'd break down. And they introduced a guy, a guy called Ben Rosenblatt, who's masterful on strength and conditioning. And those women were so resilient when it came to stepping up uh, in terms of standard of the game and matching the best in the world. And they, they won a gold, of course. But we've learned a bit from that because we've got people like Paul Fisher and a, a brilliant sports science network that's been evolving for a couple of years, which is now going to come to the forefront, I think, because the science in the game has been fairly quiet, really. So the whole thing around sports science, sports medicine, which to some people might you might think, well, that's just something like a nice bolt-on. But if you want to succeed at world level, it's an essential ingredient, as I've learned from British cycling. So um, a good example will be in a new education program next year. We'll, and again, this is going to be designed by the sports scientists and the coaches together, is that we want the coaches not necessarily to be like supermen and superwomen on every subject, but I think having much better knowledge around player strength and conditioning, recovery, what, com what level of competition exposure should they have in terms of player loading, what intensity, how much can you push people to understand the human body so you're not breaking your athletes down. All, all that is added to the coaching knowledge. Now, a lot of coaches have that anyway because they've invested time. And other coaches that perhaps feed athletes at a younger level may not have that knowledge and not realise that they can, they can develop those, uh, the potential of those players far greater if they had this broader knowledge. So, you know, this is just the start. In other sports, they've been doing this probably for five, six, seven, eight years. And, and a lot of the stuff that happened at, at British Cycling at sort of the performance level, you know, whilst I'm no Dave Brailsford, I learned a lot about how you bring it into play. And the key thing for basketball is that we have the right experts informing the game with this new research and we bring sports science into play. And we did from, from the fun level, through to development, through to being the world's best, we bring this new expertise into play and we'll raise the standard. I'm absolutely convinced I'm not here just to mess about with the game. I'm genuinely here to try and help this environmental shift that we're better, the potential is fulfilled and we start competing at Europe and world level. It'll take a while though, Sam. This stuff doesn't happen in two years. You know what I mean? You've, built, you've got to build it. So there's a couple of things. Um, you know, you obviously spent a lot of time canvassing opinion and getting feedback from people and, and everything else. So last week uh, on the podcast, we actually spoke to a British basketball legend, Martin Henlon, and he was talking about the BBL and um, kind of its when it was kind of at its peak and things were going well, and then there was a there was a sort of low point, and and he always felt that the worst thing they did uh, was start democratizing it and letting everyone have a say. And actually, um, we ended up running with the headline that Brit British basketball needs to be a dictatorship, um, and actually just take control and and you know get bring, you have, they have the expertise, use their experts to um, to yeah. do what's right for the game. Like, how do you get that balance right between knowing which opinions to listen to and which ones to throw out? You know, at the BDM, like any any anyone could have come to that last night. Someone yeah. with with no right to have any say in the future of the game, but they could give an opinion that then is taken forward as part of the plan to, to change the game kind of how yeah how do you how do you look at that yeah that's a great question that that's that, that's that's probably where we're at in the next three to six months so let, let, let's get into that it's a really good good subject um if if a governing body has um got the science when i say the science i don't mean just sports science sports mention but the, the evidence and, and the metrics to say if you do this with players aged nine to twelve you do this with players aged 12 to 15. If you have this program, this talent program that does X, Y, Z, you, if, you, if you can identify the things that you do to support athletes, coaches, and everybody in the game, produces a, a, a definite shift in the standard of play uh, and achievement or a definite shift in the retention of those young people because they love the game. And if you've got that evidence, you can then point to saying that is the best way of doing it. And in fact, if you show annual improvements, as many governing bodies do now, the people in the game start believing that this is the best way to do it. And the governing body over time has authority. And I don't mean authority as in dictating to people, but the governing body is seen as totally in tune with the people in the game. The governing body is not a separate thing. It's that the governing body is kind of the wraparound, the sport that says we're on this journey. Things are getting better. We can prove it's getting better. Everybody in the game, men, women, boys, girls, they're all party to this. And it, it sounds ideal, but some sports are getting there now. There's a rhythm with the whole game. And people point to the standards. So 
And, and when that grows, you don't get disputes saying, well, I don't agree with the national coach. You know, the national coach just set um, a 12-week preparation program before the next camp, and I don't agree with that, actually. In, in sports where they've gone through this process I'm describing, there's a, there's a dual respect. There's a respect from, from the national coaches and the professionally paid people who, who prescribe these things top-down, that authority you've mentioned, because it's based on proven evidence that if you do A and B, you're going to get a better result with the athlete. If you put a coach on this education program and challenge them to be the best, you're going to get a better coaching practice. Now, at the moment, um, there's that around in the game, but there's no definitive position. It's back to what we said about 10 minutes ago. That, you know, what are the definitive standards? You know, people like John Amici, you know, he was fanatical when I did speak to him a couple of months ago about, you know, what are the defined standards in coaching? And is the practice great? And are we, are we observing people and pushing people to be the best, both in performance, but also the welfare of kids? So once you've got the standards and you can point to it with the evidence that it works, everybody can get behind that authoritative position. I don't think Basketball England, uh, for some years, has kind of had that, that position because they haven't, they haven't created that environment. And, and many other governing bodies haven't. It's not just basketball. A lot of governing bodies are struggling with it. But the, the better ones, if you think about, you know, success at Olympics, some sports coming from Norway, you know, gymnastics have, have, have really done well the last few years. Um, they, they've really come to the fore on that. So um, there is a point then. This is where the amateur and the professional starts to have the rub in the game here. And I don't mean a negative rub. So as a sport, coming into this sport, basketball, we, we don't have a lot of resource to centralise everything. One of, the, one of the really difficult things that I've got to sort of work through and model is that the game's got not got a huge amount of resource in it at the moment, but it's slowly getting better and there's a confidence brewing about, about investing in the sport. Um, but there's a point at which that brilliant volunteer effort in local communities, in you know, inner city London, Manchester, Newcastle, wherever, um, that, that, that builds locally with or without support from various people. But it happens because we've got a ton of great people doing some good work to help people. And then that flushes out with, you know, there's emerging talent in these communities. So how do they get supported? Um, and that's through more volunteer effort. And then there's a, there's a point at which um, having it disaggregated all over the country is difficult to nurture talent. There's a point at which it has to come into a regional mode or a national mode. And you bring, need to bring the players together, particularly team sports, so the governing bodies, Sam, that have really succeeded, they've had a talent structure and a, a base or a hub of services more centralised, more contact time with the emerging and the best athletes. And it's a little bit more intense, a little bit more sophisticated, and you, you can be totally in tune with the needs of the athlete. Now, at the moment, we've got a very decentralised system. We have got very few paid, compared with major sports, very few paid full-time coaches. Um so, so I haven't got an answer in this commentary today, but this is where we're going to move to. We're going to move towards a new model that overcomes this decentralised kind of feel to the sport, that tries to work through the current resource constraints, but that's building. You can feel momentum, you know, interesting commercial. You know, the pro league uh, teams are having con very positive conversations. There's a mood shift. There's definitely a mood shift that I'm picking up now, and, and, and the fact that the conversations are changing is good. So there's going to be a point, I think, where... We're going to have to decide whether we're going to have lots of people all over the country kind of doing semi-professional uh, roles or whether we get into a position where we can resource certainly the top half or top end of the talent into performance basketball where we're going to have more capacity and more professionally paid people who can then invest the, the, the kind of mind, body and thinking in, 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 in full-time basketball. Now, I want to kind of just add, though, before we move on, that I want to be really careful because what I don't want to do is give an impression that the volunteer coaching base is going to be second second class citizen because they're not because because really it starts there and without that nothing's going to happen but but if we're going to succeed we're going to have to ask some tough questions about there's, there's a, root, a a fairly ruthless point isn't there where if you want to be the world's best you're going to have to have a slightly different approach because at the moment we're not we're not anywhere near the world's best so we're going to have to have a change of view about the top end of the sport and the way we support it does that make sense it makes per perfect sense. I wanted to pick up on one of your points there, which was about uh, the centralisation thing. I've always felt that until the federation takes a lot more central control over things, it's going to be yep. very hard to really drive things forward. Kind of, yeah. I mean, with with the resource constraints, you know, where do you sit on that debate? 
you know, do you feel like you need Barcelona England to be taking more central control? If you don't have the resource to do it, how will you do it? Like, um, kind of, yeah, what's your thinking around that? Yeah, so um, one of the things we're going to be doing uh, on, the, on the back of the BDM, so for the ones, people who are listening, not, not familiar, the, the, so the basketball development model is just our kind of working title for a complete pathway review and the things we've talked about in the past 40 minutes or so. But we're going to have to turn that into from research and cons- consultation and ideas um, and scooping all the current practice up into what's the change of state we want and, and exactly your question, how do you attract resources to deliver better? So what I can see coming through all this, this input from people is that um, we'll end up, end up with a sort of a national um, model uh, which covers how you identify and support talent throughout the country. How do they access the best possible support from coaching, sports science, player welfare, nutrition, psychology, best playing environments? How do they maintain a good education whilst they fulfill their aspirations for basketball? Now, these things are happening already. But it, it needs, needs to be probably crisper. It needs to join up more. The transition of levels needs to come through easier for people. And so how do you resource this strengthening and this, this upgrade in what we're trying to do? And how do you help people who, who volunteer the time to be even better at what they do? How do you help them? So my thoughts are around this. If we have a blueprint, a national blueprint for this talent structure and the services that go into, you know, 14-year-olds with talent, 16-year-olds with getting better, 18s knocking the door for seniors. How do you put something together that gets the right resources? So at the moment, there is definitely an appetite from a number of local authorities, universities, colleges. There's a number of investors, private investors. I don't mean people who are going to spend hundreds of millions, but, but you know, in localities across the country, people are asking me, you know, what will be the kind of regional structure or is there going to be an academy hub or, you know, what are the what are these new structures that are going to come out of this research be like? And for me, if we had a model, Sam, which is around locations and it isn't just about the bricks and mortar of a facility, but if we had um, a model that all these services, all these everything, coaching, sports science, all, all the things I've been rattling off in this conversation, if they're identified as a cluster of services in, in different parts of the region, so Everybody from every community can get within these services within a certain travel time. We start to have a, a, a structure which is accessible, progressive, and people can then get the most out of the game. So, so the way I'm seeing it in the next six months, I think the ambition of the board is that we would publish this through a kind of a prospectus or a plan. And then we'd invite people to consider how they want to invest in it. That makes sense. So let's let's let's. Um, I mean, I'm dreaming now. So I hope Paul Blake doesn't mind me mentioning this. But you know that, that amazing facility that's about to come about in Newcastle. You know, Northumbria University is, is already doing a lot of the things I'm talking about. But it's like, can that be kind of shaped in a way that the pathway is clear, the services are even clearer, and the support, the resources needed, can kind of all come together. So it it, it all works beautifully. So it's like. Um, it's like a system, really. It's like people can come through this and everyone can get access to the right services without, without, without uh, spending too much time just trying to scratch around for a few quid. It's so, almost talking about sort of like a regional institute model yeah, which covers yeah, everything, yeah. not just performance. Exactly. Sorry, the reason I'm taking a while to describe it is what, when I've done this before, Sam, with various groups of people, as soon as you name, so if you say academy, people, people relate yeah. to what might have happened in the past. If you mention a regional institute, so I'm trying not to use working titles or names because it, what it does, it takes people back. Oh, we've done that before, yep. and it doesn't work. What I'm saying is, whatever it looks like, it has to it has to work from an athlete centred approach, and it has to be resourceful. Um, so, you know, I'll give you a practical example. You know, if a if a 70 year old with with real talent needs access to physio now because they've got an injury, or needs advice because they've got some recurring uh, problem. Um, they don't need that in four weeks' time because they've just lost a lot of court time and can't practice and can't be coached. So it's like, how do you get that? And, and we've been talking to a network of, of, of the physios with, through Paul. You know, we're talking about, can we broker services so people can buy into this? And if we can get a good service around accessing that support for athletes at local level, um, is there like a bit of an economy to think about? So would people pay for it? If some people can't pay for it, how do we find the resource to support it? So some of the ideas was around... You know, a lot of the people who were training in, in physiotherapy, for example, in universities, 
is how can we kind of do some support work through supervision and give them some assignments and so on. So, I mean, there's a lot in this and people listening might go, oh, you can't let these people loose on athletes. But there's a way of quality assuring it. There's a way of people giving experience. There's a way of, of I'm just using this as one example. There's loads of ways of doing this uh, across coaching and other things. So they're going to be like, resource, I can see resource centres being crystallised and then saying, be it, you know, a, a vice chancellor who's very keen on, on, on expanding their enrichment at, at university and, and doing more work in the community and supporting a great sport like basketball. Um, you know, if we had a prospectus that says we're inviting people to come together um, and think about how they invest in this brilliant sport and there's a lot in it for you as an establishment, that, that's the way I think we want to start thinking about preparing the sport. So it's not about basketballing and finding all the money. In fact, we struggle with all this I'm talking about. But it's presenting the opportunity and the future thinking of the game based on everyone's, you know, very few opinions now are polarised in the sports and people really want this. Um, and that's probably one of my roles and, and the board's role is to is to create this picture and this aspiration to invest and then talk about the reality of how it can actually happen. And this is the start of it today. So I guess I guess this is the first time I've talked publicly about about it. And but can I say they're not necessarily my ideas. This is just this is me grouping all the thinking, yeah. all the consultation, all the opinion of people like you and great people in the game who said, this has got to happen, Stuart. You know, how can we create it? And this is, this is the start of it, I guess. So one, one thing I definitely want to speak about is the funding thing. Now, um, <laughs> you know, it was just announced last week that you got four years, four years worth of funding, um, 4.73 million. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that always happens anytime there's a funding announcement is that everyone looks at what everyone else is getting and he's like, oh, <laughs> Neville's getting this and yes, they're getting yeah. this. And, and uh, I'd be really interested to kind of hear your take on it, whether you feel that Barcelona was getting a raw deal um, in terms of the figures compared to relative to participation and stuff. And then, of course, the way that Sporting uh, have previously measured it with the APS survey, you know, Barcelona was in, in a very unique situation in the sense of there is just so much informal participation happening, happening yeah. that's so hard for you to track. Which obviously, if you could track, would make a massive difference in terms of your cause to get public funding because your numbers would be massively inflated. Kind yeah. of, yeah. What's your thinking around those sort of two two areas? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it might be worth worth explaining the, the the kind of government sport England approach to it at the moment because that that, that has a bearing on, on on why these numbers start to differ. So. Um, uh, I mean, the big shift in this current cycle, this kind of like next four years, is is that in the previous eight, it's been very much governing body centric. So um, there was a view, I think, that you know, quite rightly, in many ways, that, that you know, that, that, that the lifeblood of the sport is through the governing bodies, the membership organisations, and they represent their sport really well, and the club network and so on can do a great job in attracting people into the sport. However. Um, after eight years, it's pretty obvious that, you know, a lot of governing bodies have stepped up and can reach new people. Other governing bodies have consolidated and done, done the stuff they do really well. And then other governing bodies have just not had the capacity to sort of increase the reach and, and, and move forward. And what, what I think is really good about Sport England's approach um, over the last sort of 12 years is, and they've got a difficult job, uh, to be fair, to try and, try and service so many demands on sport and the broader things in health. But what they've done, they've they've really tried not just to put money their way to help them, but try to challenge them and uh, question how they can build the capacity. You know, you have to look at the Olympic success, but also the sports of increased participation. They've increased their influence on the game. They've increased participation. Technically, some of them are brilliant. Um, and when they do that, they become more attractive commercially. So instead of depending on sporting loans funds forever, they start to be able to become a bit more self-sufficient and they can do things, uh, you know, a bit more flexibly, but more innovatively because they're not dependent on public money. And Sporting have tried to invest directly to support them, but also challenge them to get better at what they do. And, and to be fair, they've done that pretty much with, with basketball. And since I've been at Basketball England, I've had that treatment. And I say treatment, it's a very positive treatment, but it's challenged you to run the sport better. It's challenged you to understand your customer base, which is what I spent a lot of time doing. And it's challenged you to sort of understand your market and say, you know, what are you going to do to influence the game, better experiences and scale up your operations so you can be more sustainable and reach new people. So, so they, they've had to have that in mind. But what's happened in, the net, in this current cycle with the new strategy is um, Sport England's uh, focus through, through a lot of, you know, 
public influence, uh, government influence and their own insight is that the people who are inactive really need some attention. So, you know, the strategy is very much about reaching inactive people, people who perhaps uh, don't have the same opportunities as others to get involved in sport and active lifestyles. So as a result, Sam, what's happened is there's less money being spent on governing bodies per se on their core business. And there's proportionally more going towards other attracting other people into sport. And I, I'm, I think governing bodies should understand and respect that because that, that's, you know, that's working with the grain of society and public opinion. The things that, though, that, that challenge governing bodies is you know, if, if you're trying to run a sport and improve it and raise standards at the same time, a lot of it is, is the capacity. You know, do you have the capacity to actually change the state of the game and influence influence internally and externally? And that's where we are. Basketball is quite a challenge. Um, but I guess that's one of the reasons that, that you know, I was approached and, and I've taken on the challenge because I, I think I'm capable of, of working with a, a team and a refined team internally, but also uh, the partners to make a difference. So Sport England's positions changed. And the people, it's worth understanding that as a result, the money that's distributed changes. Now, let's go to the governing body question per se about, about comparisons. Um, what, what Sport England process was this time is that they, uh, they had a, some indicative funding ranges based on how big is your sport? What is the core of your sport? People playing fairly regularly, you know, maybe minimum twice a month uh, towards weekly. So how big is your sport? And also, what influence does the governing body have on uh, in, uh, affecting people, people's behaviour to come into the sport. So governing body X, for example, might have a, I don't know, a playing base of 200,000, but actually they only have an influence on maybe 20,000. So yes, it's a governing body, it's got a small membership maybe, but actually most of the people who play the game may not have a lot to do with the governing body. So the, the playing base is small and their influence is small. Conversely, there are some sports where the playing base is big and they have a huge influence on that. So where your playing base is big and you've got a a pretty decent influence on that, that playing base. Sport England identified like a range of funding that you that a governing body could draw on if they put good plans together about about how it's going to operate and the future growth. Um, and we were given a funding range uh, up to 4.8 million for our core funds, and we've drawn 4.73. Now, all the bids were kind of oversubscribed. I think. I think. I think there's a huge demand on this governing body fund, and uh, you know, limited funds. Uh, excess demand so sporting had a really tough job i think in trying to allocate the money and and support governing bodies i think the last thing they want to do is is, is proportion the money and leave governing bodies in, in a difficult state to to support the membership and grow the and support and grow the game so they didn't want to do that but they've had a tough job so back to your direct question now were we happy well the maximum we could got is 4.8 could have gained 4.8 and we got 4.73 and and given that you know, look at the um, the past four years. Uh, you, you dropped me a note the other day on this. Um, you know, the sports had sort of annual funds because it's it's not had the confidence of, of investors like Sport England. So this time we've got four years worth of funds um, to sort of underpin the core of the sport and do the things that I'm talking about with you today. So, I mean, this is a good result. This is a really good result because um, we can plan. Uh, we can be quite confident, very confident about the things we're talking about to convert into action starting uh, in, well, from the first of April onwards, we're going to publish a plan in May and there'll be discrete plans around refereeing, coaching, club support, facility plans, which we've not got to yet, but we've got some really interesting views on that. Um, and you'll see some action. So, um, you know, I've been preparing for this point. Uh, for those that saw the press release, I know you, you got your hands on that pretty early when we released it. That press release was... Um, was a bit different to other governing bodies. Um, so different in the sense that I didn't come out saying the governing body have clinched this money. What I was saying was we've opened up ways of talking to people in the game far better than before. We've got loads of opinion. We're bringing some science into it. We've boiled that down and we understand the needs of people who are in this sport who love it. And this bid represents what they want. It's not what me and a few people in the office or the board think we should do. It, it represents what people in the sport have been saying for 12 months. And can I say, Sam, that's probably one of the reasons I've not been uh, very, very public about doing things and changing things. Because I think the important bit is that the next move for basketball in this governing body has got to be the right move for people in the game. And that's why we've done it this way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think... Uh... Yeah, I think uh... That is a perfect place to leave it. I'm aware we're coming up on the, the hour mark um, and you need to head off as well. 
Um, but I would just like to ask, uh, have you got any sort of final parting comments? You gave us some sort of rough timelines. I, I do think that um, people are people are itching to see some action now um, yeah. and see all this stuff start, you know, feeling this on the ground. So um, yeah. I guess if you've got any parting comments around that, um, that'd be a great way to sort of wrap it up. Yeah, so... so uh... The, probably the best way of communicating that is to say in May we're going to publish plans and they're not plans as, oh that's another strategy there'll be very specific plans about these are the things that will happen in, in uh, across the country in regions in local areas um, you know everything around coaching curriculum tut- the tutor standards how we deliver education sessions across coaching across refereeing officiating um, club development support um, we've got some really interesting thinking around how we frame facility improvements over time, not just building places, but things like a footprint for like outdoor venues with canopies and um, to combat the weather, but actually tap into the outdoor growth um, for the game. So, so, and again, these aren't me. This isn't me inventing stuff. This is me playing back my team, playing back the demands that are, are there for the sport and understanding what people want. So, um, Kind of say that they won't all happen at the same time, but I think the idea of, of showing what's going to change, who's involved, and, and, and I think we have to answer the question when we publish these plans, what's in it for me? So as a coach, what does that mean for a coach? As a club, what does that mean for a club? As a school that's really keen on doing extra curricular basketball, what does that mean for the school? So there'll be very, it'll be a practical year, but can I say, to manage people's expectations, it'll unfold in different layers. And the last thing to say is, um, if we can get momentum around this you know the conversation we're having and people buy into it and they should buy into it because they're telling me this is what they want um i do feel that probably in nine months time you know if we have another conversation maybe this time next year because of the way the game should be lining up now in this conversation 12 months time and the way that everything from the you know the clutch of pro clubs right down to community basketball and the way we want to scale up schools basketball we should be having a conversation saying the game feels bigger, the game feels stronger. Let's have these commercial conversations about sponsorship and things like that because I think sponsors will be watching this game grow and go, we want a piece of that. And that's where we want to be in 12 months' time. Perfect. Stuart, thank you so much for taking the time. It is much appreciated. I think uh, everyone would have learned a lot from the conversation. And yeah, we'll definitely have to get you on for a part two sometime. Brilliant. Thanks for that. Thanks for the opportunity, Sam. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.